I hope this morning that you've brought your Bibles, and so if you have, uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, let's, just, uh, let's just go to the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Um, I've got a few verses I want to read to you from there, and then uh, we'll flip over to chapter 5. There's a couple verses I'd like to read there as well. But let's go ahead and let's begin in Exodus chapter 1. That should be quick and easy for you to find. That's the second book in your Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, the first verse begins, Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephilia, Gad, and Asher, and all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now turn with me just a couple pages to chapter 5. And the first verse there begins and says, And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God, of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for our church family, for each one that's come this way. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings that you poured out on us, but as already was mentioned this morning, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Lord God, that you sent him in giving so that we might have life eternally and abundantly. And Lord, we just, uh, we're not worthy. We don't deserve it. We know that. But Lord, you knew that too, and you did it anyways. And so God, let us always be a people who uh, has praise, nothing but praise and glory on our lips for you, because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I just pray as we go forward here this morning in this service, Lord, have your way and your will in our midst here this morning. Lord, do what only you can do here, and we'll give you all the glory for it. Lord, my heart's desire is for you to be uh, glorified and for you to be pleased in everything that is said and done here. So, Lord, what I'm asking of you is I'm asking that you would just move in our midst in a mighty way. Lord, I'm praying, Lord, for your spirit, Lord, to just have its free way and will here for your will to be done in our midst, God. Lord, you tell us in your word, it's your will, Lord, that your word will not return void. So as your word goes forward, Lord, I'm asking that it would accomplish uh, your will here this morning. 
I'm praying this morning that if there is any among us that have maybe backslidden, any that are lost and undone, any that are not sure where they stand with you, any that's let any kind of sin creep into their heart or their life, God, my prayer this morning is that your will would be done in that case. God, that you'd pour out your old-time Holy Ghost conviction upon them and that you wouldn't give them any peace and repent of their sins because you tell us that it is your will uh, that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so, Lord, that is my prayer this morning. And, Lord, I am praying, <coughs> Lord, as I get ready to deliver your message, Lord, I, I know that you've called me and that you've asked me to do this this morning. Uh, Lord, I know that because that is something I would never desire on my own. It is something I would never want to, uh, but God, that's what you wanted, and that's what you asked, and so here I am. And so, Lord, I'm asking, Lord, that you would just use me uh, this morning as your messenger. God, I'm asking for your anointing, your holy unction, for a moving of your spirit. God, I'm asking that you'd clear my mind of everything but your message, your words. God, and that you'd place on my tongue the very things that you would have me to say here this morning. Lord, and my desire is every hearer here this morning would know and realize, Lord, that this isn't my thoughts or my message, but it's your message. And Lord, that I'm praying this morning, Lord, that all would recognize and realize, uh, Lord, by the moving of your spirit, Lord, and how you confirm in each heart, Lord God, uh, as your word is spoken here this morning, Lord, that I'm just delivering your message. And God, that they would leave here knowing that they have heard from you, Lord. Lord, that it has come from you through my spirit to their spirit, Lord, as one, uh, as one dying man to another. And so, Lord, I'm just asking, Lord, help me to get out of the way. And, Lord, let you be God of this service. I'm asking for your way and for your will this morning. And, Lord, I'm just asking for you to move mightily in our midst. And we'll give you all the glory for it because we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. I honestly don't know where I want to start this morning. And I know what you're thinking. You should have figured that out long before you ever got up there. <laughs> I preached about Joseph, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Hopefully, hopefully you still kind of remember the story about Joseph. Now, I didn't preach his entire story. I might briefly summarize the last part of his life. I did mention to you that you should go home and that you should read it, really the rest of the book of, of, of Genesis from where we were reading at at that time. Uh, it's, uh, you know focuses around Joseph in uh, his life and the events that occur there. Um, we end the book of Genesis with the death of Joseph. That's mentioned again in the verses that I read here. Um, remember that, just keep this in mind, all right? Let, let's, let's start with the historical narrative, all right? Let's go through a little bit and, and make sure that we're all on the same page as what has happened here. And then I have a question that, uh, or a thought in the form of a question that I am going to present to you. It, it's, you already read it. It says it right in the scripture. It's not mine, it's God's. Uh, but it, I, I'll, in case you didn't notice it, I'll point it out to you here in a minute. 
But let's go through things first. If you'll remember, God sent Joseph. uh, Now look, there was evil and there was bad things that happened and bad stuff happened to Joseph. But we realize that God is taking that awful situation and he is making something good come out of it. Now don't, don't mistake it and think that all evil is from God or God desires evil or anything like that. As, as Paul says in the book of Romans, God forbid, right? That's not God's desire at all. That's not what he does. But, as, but we know that evil is the result of sin, right? And, and as, as sin has come into the world and the evil that comes with it, God has a way, right? Uh, for those that love God and serve God, which, which obviously we find out from learning about Joseph, he does. Uh, God has a way of taking bad things, bad situations, things that the devil and those that serve him mean for bad and mean for evil and mean for wickedness. God has a way of taking those things and turning them around and making something good come out of it, right? For those that love God, for those that serve God, right? We see that with Joseph and we see that even with his family. And so anyways, uh, they're God's chosen people, right? They've done some things that I think is just pretty stupid, right? But they could probably look at my life and say the same thing about me, right? So anyways, they are God's chosen people. God used Joseph. Joseph is a, he's a type of Christ. Joseph is a figure. Uh, we see him as a savior figure for the nation of Israel. But something to keep in mind is he is not only a savior figure for the nation of Israel. Let's think about this for just a minute. He's a savior for the nation of Egypt as well. Right? Because what would have happened? Right? There's all these years of famine. If, if God had not used Joseph and revealed the meaning of Pharaoh's dream to Joseph, and then, um, I mean, you understand when Pharaoh made Joseph second command, that wasn't something from Pharaoh's own heart. That was God doing that through Pharaoh, through a wicked, evil, uh, idolatrous man. But God is using him for good. And so anyways, Joseph had become second in command, right? Because of Joseph's leadership, because of what God had revealed to Joseph, right? Uh, in the interpreting of the dreams and things like that. Joseph knows what to do, stores up all that food. And Egypt, of all the nations in the world, right? That the, this, this drought, this famine, it says, is throughout all the land, right? Uh, of all those... Egypt is the only one that comes out of this setting pretty. Think about it just a minute. They're a very strong, mighty nation going into it. And without a doubt, they come out of it the strongest nation on the face of the earth. I mean, just read the just reason it out. I mean, that is just the way that that's they're gonna come out of it in a position of strength. Their people is not starved to death. They've not lost, you know, all their power, right? They're not scrambling for scraps of food or anything like that. They're doing well. And we see that, that it's obvious that Egypt is blessed because of Joseph and because of the nation of Israel, right? And so, and I read there this morning, Jennifer read in her Sunday school class. It's amazing how things go together, right? Here is, um, here is the, what becomes the nation of Israel going into Egypt. 70 souls. Inside of Egypt is birthed a nation. We know that they live there in the land of Goshen, which is a part of Egypt there. Uh, they live there for like something like 400 years. They go from uh, 70. We don't know an exact total number overall, but we have a census count of 603,550 fighting aged men. Warriors. That census of those men is men that are above 20, 
physically able and capable to go to war and fight. So then when we start adding in men that are younger than that, men who are too old and feeble or have, uh, you know, uh, infirmities in some sort, you know, I mean, if you can't walk, you're not counted as one of the fighting men if they were handicapped or something like that, you know. So anyways, so you add in those... And then you realize, wait, it's just counted the males. So then you've got females, you've got wives, you've got daughters, uh, you know, mothers, grandmothers. See, you start adding all that in, and there is quite a nation. That's why it talks about how they filled the land and how many there is. We are in the millions if you start to do the math. and you A nation birthed inside of a nation. Time goes by. Regimes change in Egypt. Different Pharaoh, actually I think it's a whole different line, different family of Pharaohs, I think, but I don't know that for sure. Who Joseph is, what he done for Egypt, it's all forgotten. In the course of this 400 years, Israel is still separated, but yet within. They are made slaves. They are working as slaves in Egypt. They are building, you know, it talks about the, the Pharaoh's uh, treasure cities, of, what is that, Pythium and, and Ramses. I've wondered, it's just my thought, is that how the temples got, or the, the temples, the pyramids is that how they got built? I don't know that. I've just wondered that. I thought that. Kind of would make sense, but I don't know. And then it comes where it talks about Pharaoh realizes how big and how strong this people is. And he is afraid. Here's what he's afraid is going to happen. He is afraid that some enemy is going to decide to attack them maybe the Hittites or some other people with some strength and some number that's going to say, you know what, we're ready to take on Egypt. We're going to go down there, we're going to attack them, we're going to take a stab at them. And what he's afraid of happening is not just this outside army from another nation coming, but he's afraid that if something like that happens, because that is what happens, Egypt does, has done it all the time to different nations, why wouldn't they do it to them? It's happened in Egypt's past. What he's afraid is this nation of millions, two million or more, 603,550 fighting men who are slaves. He's afraid they're going to be like, this is our chance. This is our opportunity, right? And they're going to side with the enemy and overwhelm Egypt and its armies and its forces. So, as every tyrant, every despot, every whatever in history. Of course, he's, he's brutal. He decides he's going to limit the population. We're, we're, we're going to do away with, this, with Israel as a nation. What we're going to do is we're going to... He actually orders all the male Hebrew children to be aborted at birth. I mean, that's what it is. That's all it is. It's a late-term abortion. And he, and he orders, Pharaoh orders for all of them 
right? That shows you where that idea and that thought comes from, doesn't it? That's one of the tricks of the devil, right? Abortion, that's exactly what, it, what is happening here. That's what, I mean, that's what's going on. That's what's described. So what he does is he orders, right, the, it says Hebrew midwives. I don't know exactly what that means, if that means the midwives were Hebrew or if these were midwives that attended to the Hebrew, whatever, it doesn't matter. He orders them to just as soon as they see that it's a boy, kill it. As it's coming out of the womb, just as soon as enough comes that you see that you know that it's a male, kill it. It's the only time the devil's pulled that trick, is it? I told you that that still happens in our day today. Think about the time of Jesus. What did Herod the Great, right? What, did, what was Satan doing through Herod the Great, right? It's very similar, right? Those two things should remind you of each other. So anyways, what happens is, is he orders the Hebrew midwives to kill the male children. He's thinking that if we killed all the boys, uh, then that's going to put an end, right? This, this fighting age men are going to age out. And there's not going to be any more fighting age men. And there's just going to be women. And so what's the women going to do? The women's going to intermarry with the Egyptians, right? And we are going to erase them. We are going to eliminate them as a people. We're going to take their identity away from them. That's his plan. That's what he's trying to do. Have you ever noticed all through history, right, Satan is doing the same thing, right? He's trying to eliminate the Jewish people. We see that over and over and over, right? We see that from here in Egypt to Babylonian exile. We see that, or actually when the Assyrians come in, they're the ones that really, I think, probably make one of the best runs of that. We see that in, in, with the Romans whenever you go to 70 AD and the things that happened there. We see that all the way into modern times, right? We see that with the Nazis and Hitler and, and what they did. That's what Satan has been trying to do throughout all of time. The thing is, these two Hebrew women or these two Hebrew midwives, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. So what they done was, they didn't do what he asked them to do. Whenever, well, they just didn't kill the boys. They just couldn't do it. There was just something inside. They knew that it was wrong, right? They knew instinctively it was wrong, and they could not bring themselves to do it. So they told Pharaoh, Look, these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. They're a lively, they're a hardy bunch. Time we get there, they've already popped that thing out. That's probably crude. I shouldn't have said it that way. By the time that we, we get there, they have already delivered. And it's too late. You don't think that it's talking about abortion. Think about that for just a minute. You can kill a baby or a child at any time. Right? But they're saying she's already delivered, so, you know, we can't kill it even by your orders. Hmm. Anyways, so Pharaoh has a new plan. He orders the Hebrews to take their baby boys and throw all their baby boys into the Nile River. Now, my first thought is throwing them in the river. He's talking about the Nile River. My first thought on throwing them in the river is, you know, well, throw them in there and they drown. But I read something. I'm one of those. I get something in my mind and I'm fascinated by it and then I look it up and I want to read about it and stuff like that. Uh, Don't ask me how. I don't even know how. 
why, it doesn't matter. I read a bunch about crocodiles here a couple years ago. I, don't, I got interested, I don't know. I think it started out, I, I have no idea, it doesn't matter. Did you realize that the most aggressive and most dangerous type of crocodile is the Nile crocodile? Now, they're not the largest, they're the second largest. Saltwater crocodiles are actually the largest, right? Salt, saltwater crocodiles are pretty mean and vicious also, but not anywhere near. They estimate there's about 30 people killed per year by saltwater crocodiles, and that on average, um, Nile crocodiles kill and eat over 300 people a year, even today. That's, most, that's recent statistics. They are extremely aggressive. Okay, they're the most aggressive of all different types of species of, of crocodiles and alligators and so on and so forth. Them little Hebrew boys were going to be food for the crocodiles. That's what Pharaoh's plan was. That's what, you know. So it te- the Bible tells us that, of course, Moses is born. Here's another savior figure. His mom sees that he's a goodly child, that there's something special there. Obviously, she's can't just she's having trouble doing what Pharaoh has ordered them to do. It's interesting that what she ends up doing, she hides him as long as she can. But it, I mean, it just comes to the point: this little baby, she can't hide him any longer. So she makes, and what the Bible says, an ark. And if you look at the description and how it's built, and you go back and compare it with Noah, it's like a miniature version of Noah's Ark. It's the same word that's used there in everything, right? And it's, you know, waterproofed with pitch and all that stuff. And so they build this little ark, right? This little, this, this little boat, this little basket, whatever you want to call it, and it's waterproofed and everything. And they put Moses in it and put him into the river, or the Nile, and that's actually where his name comes from. But anyways, and then... No, or Moses' older sister, Miriam, she stations her to watch and see what happens. And we can speculate on what was in her mind, what she was thinking, and that's not my point. But anyways, what happens is, and I think it's by no accident, no mistake, that this is the area where Pharaoh's daughter goes and bathes and such. Pharaoh's daughter sees this and says, oh my, this must be one of the Hebrew boys. And she saves him. She pulls him out of the water. That's where actually Moses' name comes from. That's what it means. She pulls him out of the water and and saves him, right? Uh, You're going to see two things as you go through Moses' life. One, you're going to see a reoccurring theme with Moses and water. Kind of like I've heard it said before, mastery over water, right? I mean, think about it for just a minute, right? Moses, Moses and the Nile. We see Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea, right? We see Moses. Well, we see him during the Ten Plagues turning the, the water into blood. We see him later in the wilderness, right? Getting water from the rock, right? We see that reoccurring theme over and over. Something else that we see that I think is interesting that I, I was studying this is we see in the book of Exodus, we see women as a dominant, hero, character, whatever you want to call it, uh, there in the scripture. And we see them, as a matter of fact, we see women saving Moses over and over and over again. 
Uh, go back to the two Hebrew midwives, right? Saints would not be happening the way they were if it hadn't have been for them and what they did. Here we see Pharaoh's daughter, right, uh, pulling Moses out of the Nile River, right, saving him. We see Moses' own sister, Miriam, watching over all of this. And what Miriam does, Miriam runs to, uh, to Moses or to uh, Pharaoh's daughter and says, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women, to, women who are nursing right now, do you want me to get one of them to nurse this baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Go get one. Well, she goes and gets Moses' mother, her mother, right? And, and Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying Moses' mother to raise Moses until he is weaned. And then what's amazing about all of this story is Moses' mother, in order to save, right, she saves her son too, in order to save him, she has to give him over to Pharaoh's daughter, to Pharaoh's household, right? Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house as Pharaoh's grandson. Understand something about the people of ancient times. We're in... I don't know, everybody might have their own feelings, and, and I understand where they come from, but really I think they were a lot more right than what we are. We always kind of make a separation between blood and legal, you know, like adopted, that's illegal, that, that's your, legally your child, and just as much, but they're technically not blood, and we always kind of make that distinction. In ancient times, they did not make that distinction. That was... Moses is considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses is Pharaoh's grandson with all the privileges, nothing limited, not thought of, and not looked at ever. That's, that's a little difficult for us because in the back of our mind, we kind of always keep that separation. They didn't. So here we have Moses saved again. And of course, you could even go farther in the story, right? And, and, and you can see... Um, Moses' wife, Zipporah, save him when God's going to kill him. So you have that reoccurring over and over. So Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. We can only imagine he's trained in the ways of war. He's trained in the best ways. Just, I mean, prepared, uh, you know, just like he might be Pharaoh one day, you know, prepared in such a way, going to the best of schools or having the best of tutors, learning, right? All of these things. And then a day comes that he decides, so he must have knew where he come from because he decides to go and check on his brethren and see what things are like for them, right? The Hebrews and their slaves. And he goes, and there's two, there's an Egyptian and a Hebrew that are, the Egyptian is being mean, you know, he's beating him, whatever. It's funny how it says, Moses looks around to make sure there's nobody watching and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And then, the, like the next day or shortly later, he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men fighting, one being mean to the other. And he says, why are you doing this? And then, of course, they jump in the middle of him and they, you know, who's made you a prince and a judge over us? And what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? And Moses panics. Oh, my goodness. Everybody knows what I've done. Pharaoh finds out Pharaoh is mad. Pharaoh is ready to kill him because he is siding with these slaves. And so Moses has spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. 
and now he's headed, he's a fugitive, and he's going to spend the next 40 years on the backside of the desert figuring out that he ain't nobody, okay? And so anyway, so he flees, right? He, spent, he spends 40 years, uh, he, he, he flees into the desert. What happens is, is, is he ends up by this well of water, um, and the, Jethro, the priest of Midian, his seven daughters come to, to, to water their dad's flock. There's an altercation with some of the other local shepherds there. Moses stands up for them. And, and, and you know how this scenario goes. Next thing you know, he's married to one of Jethro's daughters, right? Zipporah, all right? And so he spends 40 years, right, taking care of Jethro's uh, flock, his sheep, and whatever it is he might have, his livestock on the backside of the desert until he has an encounter with God on the Mount of God, which is Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, uh, with what we know as the burning bush. And that's when God speaks to him, right? This bush that burns but is never consumed. And God speaks to him. That's when God tells him, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. He tells him, he says, I've heard the cry uh, of, of Israel, of my people. And, you know, he starts with, you know, telling Moses, preparing Moses for what Moses is going to do. And he sends Moses back to deliver the people, right? Moses has got all kinds of excuses. Moses says, I talk funny, you know, I, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not any of the, I can't do the everything, right? I, did, I didn't even know this story that I'm telling you right now of the book of Exodus. And when God called me to preach, I was doing like Moses. I was saying all them same things, God. Call somebody else, send somebody else. I can't do it. You know how stupid and slow of tongue I am, right? I'm no talker. You need somebody who is a slick talker. And God says, no, I need you. So that whole thing goes, you know, back and forth. And God is aggravated with Moses and finally says, look, I'll use Aaron too. And, and, and you know, I'll tell you what to say. You tell Aaron what to say. And Aaron will say it, which is a stupid arrangement. But that's Moses and his fault. But anyways, Moses goes back. On the way back is where the whole incident with Zipporah and, and Zipporah saves Moses' life. So there he is, rescued by a woman again. And when he gets back, and he first goes to the Hebrew people, and they're all, wow, God has sent you, and that's great, and, you know, they're excited. And, and anyways, and so he goes to Pharaoh. There's a reason that I read to you the verses that I read to you. He says, Pharaoh says, in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. If we went back to the verses that I read to you in chapter 1, the last verse I read to you says, And there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. There's this Pharaoh, this dynasty, this regime, that has come into power, that has forgotten where they had come from. And they don't know the Lord. And the thing that has struck me so strong about that, now understand, whenever you're going through the scripture and you read anything about Egypt, Egypt represents the world, worldliness, okay? I look at our own nation. And we have forgot 
where we come from. We've forgotten what God has delivered us from. We have forgotten all the blessings and all the miracles that has happened and that has took place. We, we, you look back in time, just look, look at our own country, look at our own people, okay? I'm just going to speak to our own people. Look at our own people, look what God has done for us, look how God has delivered us, look what God has, has saved us from, right? Look what God has done in the past. Do you really believe that, that a nation can rise, right? The mightiest, greatest nation on the face of the earth, the, the richest nation, nation, right? Something like the world has never seen before. Do you think that that, can rise, that that can come to power and rise without God's noticing? Do you think that it can happen without God's hand? Do you really think that a bunch of farmers right, uh, could defeat Great Britain to, without God's hand? I mean, come on! Look at, what, look at the times as we go through, right, the time after time where God has delivered us, where God has raised us up, where God has blessed us. When we look like, when things look like we're the, we're, the, it's bleak and we're on the edge, there is God that delivers us and saves us again time after time after time until we come to a point where we have a, a, a society I want to I want to blame it just on a, a regime. I want to blame it just on those who are in political office, but it's our nation, it's our people, it's our society, it's our culture. God has become something offensive to us. We everything that we can to thumb our nose at God, to disrespect God, to do I mean just. Telling God to get lost? We have come to a point where, uh, we, where we regularly declare that evil is good and good is evil. And we get angry and we want to punish and we want to throw in jail anybody who would disagree with that. Anybody who, who won't toe the line, who won't bow down, and ultimately, right, this is no different than the worshiping of, of the goldens or of the, the idol, right, the statue in the days of, uh, uh, of, of Babylon. Right, the three Hebrew children, right, whenever about bowing down and worshiping. And if they don't, they're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. We have forgotten. And when anything comes, right, think about it. I mean, I know the exact words and the scenario is slightly different, but in essence, are not the judges and are not the leaders and are not the people in power and the people who are supporting those in power, aren't they all an, same as saying, who is this Lord that you're talking about? Who is this God that you're talking about? I know not. Of course, everything worked out great for Egypt, right? They went on and they, they didn't, that, no consequences whatsoever. Everything went great. It was happy ever after, right? And they were, went on just as strong and just as blessed as ever, right? No! 
No. Do you know, that? do you see the, I don't know if irony is the right word or whatever, Pharaoh wanted to drown all of the Hebrew boys in the, in the Nile River, and what happened to Pharaoh and all the fighting men in Egypt? They drowned in the Red Sea. They drowned in the Red Sea by the hand of God. Listen to me. God, God is in the nation judging business. If you think not, uh, the nice way to say is, is you're wrong. I disagree with you. The little more blunt way to say it is, is you've obviously not read the Bible or didn't understand any of it as you read it. Because God is in the nation judging business. He always has been. And as long as there are nations, he will be in the nation judging business. Right? Plumb up to the book of Revelation. Matthew 25 talks about the judgment of the nations. That is still prophetic. That is still in the future. Right? God is in the nation, nation judging business. I've told you guys this over and over. Right? There's three, three levels of judgment of God. There's worldwide judgment. That happened once in the past with the flood. Uh, so once by water, it will happen once again in the future by fire. Right? And, and then we can see on the national level, God has been judging nations, right? Uh, from the time the, of the beginning of nations, right? From the time shortly after the Tower of Babel, right? In the birth of nations. God has been in the nation judging business. And He will be throughout the end of time. And God is also in the individual Judging business, right? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all give an account for everything, every, every word spoken, every deed done, right? We will all give an account one day. Let me tell you this, this morning. The United States of America is not exempt. You might sit there and say, oh, well, there's godly, righteous people still in the United States. God won't judge it. There's too many Christians here. The Bible says it rains on the just and unjust alike. Do you not think that there was any righteous people in in Jerusalem, whenever God's judgment by the wicked, evil, uh, idolatrous, false god-worshipping Babylonians come and destroyed that temple. And the very Jews that stood there and said, the temple of the God, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? Meaning that because they had the temple, God's temple there, that God would never let anything happen to it. Do you not think that there was a single righteous person or any righteous people left in the nation when that judgment come and things got so bad that it tells us that the mothers were eating their children, right? And the cities under siege and destroyed and the temple is leveled and destroyed also? the prophet Jeremiah he was there what about those that helped Jeremiah you know carried Jeremiah out of there I don't know how many righteous people were left in Jerusalem whenever God's judgment come on Israel but there were several I don't know how many righteous people will be here when God's judgment comes on us but there'll be several me and you might be two of them 
was said in, I think, Sunday school. It's far past time that we stood up for God. And we stood up for what is right. Um, Nolan joked about him, and Mike joked about me changing the direction of my message. I started where I intended to start. I'd gotten nowhere near where I intended to go. I intended to give you a description of who the Lord is. Pharaoh says, says he doesn't know who he is, but he can tell you who he is. Well, I didn't get there, so that'll have to wait for another next week maybe or whenever. But listen to me. Hear me if you hear nothing else. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because if you're not, you better get ready. You better get ready. You look out and you think about those. Maybe you're ready, but start thinking about those that you care about. Right? Kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, neighbors. Right? You look at them and... and Look, you're not judging nobody, you're not determining nobody's salvation, but their fruit speaks for themselves. Their fruit, look, if the fruit on the tree is rotten, it ain't no good, right? If you've got an apple tree, let me give it to you another way, if you've got an apple tree in your yard and it keeps producing pears every year, it ain't no apple tree. If you've got somebody who claims, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm alright, but they keep producing worldly fruit, you ain't judging. As, as they say, you're just calling the goose a goose. And then maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, They know. They know. And they just, we all got a free will and they just make their own decision. Can I ask you something? How do you know that they know the truth? How do you know that they've been warned? How do you know that they know the gospel? How do you know? Have you told them? Have you told them? That's my message to you this morning. If you've not told them, you need to go tell them. If you've not told them, and maybe you need to tell them again. How many times was I told before I finally got things right? Would you stand to your feet? I don't know your heart. I don't know your need. I don't know your burden this morning. But if the Spirit of God is dealing with you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, if a, it, it, maybe you realize this morning you're not where you ought to be. Maybe you realize this morning you're not ready for judgment. You're not ready for that day of judgment. I'm begging you, would you come before it's everlasting too late? God cared so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on Calvary's cross so that you might be reconciled with Him, so that you might be made right, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could spend an eternity in heaven. That's how much God cares. That's what God has done.
If you're standing here this morning, you can't say that you've not been warned. You can't say that you've not heard. You have heard, and the decision is yours to make, and I'm begging you. I'm begging you, if you're not sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, where you would spend the rest of eternity, I'm begging you, you can have that surety. Would you come this morning? Would you come? If, you've got, if maybe you've got a burden on your heart for somebody and you just need to pray for them, then by all means, come pray for them. I'll pray with you. Other people will pray with you too. Whatever it is here this morning, would you come? Would you come?